0: Hey everyone, Jen Garrett here. It's so great to be back with you on another episode of Move the Ball. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And now today, inside the huddle with us and ready to help us to move the ball is Mr. Brandon Steiner. Now, Brandon is an author, speaker, media personality, and sports business icon who was the founder and CEO of Steiner Sports, among other businesses that we'll talk about. And Brandon has also spoken at many institutions, such as Harvard, Yale, Columbia, his alma mater, Syracuse, uh, a number of Fortune 500 companies and other places. He's also the author of a number of books, The Business Playbook. Another book, You Gotta Have Balls, How a Kid from Brooklyn Started from Scratch, Bought Yankee Stadium, and Built a Sports Empire. And thirdly, Living on Purpose, Stories About Faith, Fortune, and Fitness That Will Lead You to an Extraordinary Life. Now, I could go on and on about Brandon, but I'm sure you'd rather hear from him yourself. So without any further ado, Brandon, welcome to the show.
1: Welcome. Thank you for having me. And first, thank you for all the work that you do. Love your platform. I found you, by the way, because I was like, I like what she's doing. I love this content. So maybe I can get on there and have a conversation. And So thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. I mean, you're such an accomplished person. I love your story. I I love your energy. And, And so I'm really excited to chat with you today. And you, Brandon, are truly someone who knows how to make things happen and to move the ball. So let's kick off our conversation about talking about your early years when you were a kid. You grew up in Brooklyn. You look forward to making the subway trip to Yankee Stadium to buy those cheap tickets so you can uh, bask in the aura of your favorite baseball team. Talk to us about those days and what those experiences meant to you.
1: I mean, I think a big part of who you are is where you grew up and where you grew up. I mean, there's no doubt that has a tremendous impact on you. And you got to be careful with the story because sometimes that could be a good story. Sometimes that could be a bad story. You know, I remember um taking those long train rides to Yankee Stadium at ten years old. I can't even imagine my kids getting our train at ten years old, going to Yankee Stadium without parental supervision. So it's funny how things change. But you know, I grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, Brooklyn is the fourth largest city in the country. It's a very packed. You know, if you didn't know how to get along with people, then you were not gonna exist very long. So, you know, it's just there's a lot of kids, a lot of people and Um, You know, learning how to get along with other kids and and all kinds of different nationalities and colors and everything else was critical. So I think it was a great education growing up in Brooklyn, and I wouldn't miss it. I would redo it any which way. But I think, you know, I grew up, I was probably the poorest kid in the neighborhood. I lived at 539 Kings Highway. And uh, I remember being brought up uh, in front of the room. My fifth grade teacher, Mr. Kerper, um, brought me up and gave me an envelope of money. I was like, what's this for He goes, well, we took a collection to buy some clothes. I'm like, what? How do you know I need clothes? Well, you've been wearing the same pants for three weeks in a row. So how do you know that? He goes, well, you have a rip in the right knee. So obviously I was humiliated. I went home. I told my mother this. And of course, my mother being uh, the guru and my mentor. And that's where I really, the the second book, You Gotta Have Balls, was her favorite line, by the way. Uh, She was a woman that was fearless. Go all the way. Don't take any crap from anybody. You know, do your thing. Don't stop at success. Be extraordinary. So, you know, she always had a good excuse for why everything that was going on. I didn't really think of myself as poor up until this date. And um, then I went to her room uh, about three hours late. I said, Mom, I'm going to go get a job on Saturday. You don't have to worry about me anymore. I was 10 years old. I was in fifth grade. And I went on Kings Highway, which is a long strip of retail stores. And I I probably spent about six, seven hours walking in a store just asking people if they needed help. And Freddie the fruit man hired me. And uh, I started delivering fruit and vegetables. And then I, um, at some point, started stocking fruit and vegetables. It was a fruit and vegetable store on the corner of East 2nd Street and King's Highway. And I was on my way to making a $1.50 an hour. And I hope how that story relates to people that, that are listening is that, because it's kind of a simplistic story other than that, I don't recommend having your 10-year-old go out on the street and working maybe in this day and age. But at some point, you got to not use the excuses. And you cannot use your situation that you're in as an excuse to why you can or can't do something. And I think I think 10 years old, a little young, to make a stand and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a high level, I'm not putting up with this, but I think it's important that you become accountable, not based on the circumstance you were put in, but you have the ability to change your circumstances. And I think especially in this environment we're in right now, there's a lot of excuses running around. There's a lot of cheese and crackers to go with your wine. But at the end of the day, the circumstances I presented to you always... There's always room for an opportunity if you want to go get up and do something about it. And one of the things I want to get clear in this conversation right away, I tell you, I'd say this story. I'm glad you brought this up because I think it's everything for me. And, and the point is, is that I had always had a high level of non-acceptance. And it really doesn't matter where you are. I was 10. I'm like, you know something? This is embarrassing. This is humiliating. I'm not putting up with this. I have a non-tolerance for this situation. I'm not wearing these same clothes, the hand-me-downs that I had. I'm just going to go out and get a job. And I I willed it to be, and I made it happen even at 10. So I think that if you want to get somewhere, even in this environment we're going through with the virus or whatever you're in, if you're not getting very far, it's because you don't have a high level of acceptance. You You need to just put your foot in the ground and say, I'm not putting up with this relationship anymore. I'm not putting up with this job anymore. I'm not interested in making the same amount of money I've been making anymore. I don't want to be friends with these people that are dragging me down anymore. You have to just turn the volume up of your non-acceptance. Because once you do, non-acceptance is like the entry point to dreaming big. Because once you have non-acceptance, you start figuring, what am I going to do about it? Ah, but your non-acceptance is so high, you now start thinking in the details of what it takes to change and to do something about it because you're driving change. You're driving yourself to dream about what you want it to be versus what it is. And I started thinking about those Clyde Pumas that I wanted to buy. And I started thinking about having the snacks and the food that I wanted because I had my own money in my pocket. So I know it sounds kind of trite at 10 years old to have a job in a fruit and vegetable store, but I hope the people that are listening that if you're a little bit unhappy or unsettled, it's because your level of acceptance is very high, and you need to turn that down and turn your level of non-acceptance up, and then you're about to have a conversation with yourself that's meaningful.
0: Yeah, I really like that, turn your level of non-acceptance up, because a lot of times people just, they succumb to the circumstances. They make excuses to why something cannot happen instead of they say, you know what, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm going to change things and take action to move the ball and turn their circumstances around. Even in this time, the coronavirus and these uncertain times, a lot of people are just sitting on the couch. Woe is me. You know, I don't have a job. You can figure out a way to move forward if you turn up your level of non-acceptance like you say. So I think that's a great story.
1: Thank you. for I love for when I call that. somebody and they go, I'm good. I'm like, <laughs> what is, what? Who's good? Who's good? I mean, really, who doesn't need improvement in almost every one of their areas? Unless you just literally like, you know, you're literally just retired golfing in Florida and you're 85 years old. Those people are really good, but I mean, who's good. Who doesn't need improvement in their health or their job or their relationship with their spouse? With relationship with their kids. I mean, there's so much to do and so much to learn and all that's connected. The, the, the Living on Purpose book just talks about like most people, if you're just doing a money grab, you're not paying attention to your health, or you're not paying attention to your faith. How good are you? I mean, how good are you if you're doing incredibly well financially and your wife, you're not really getting along with or your husband doesn't really get along with her, your kids don't really talk to you that much. Like, how rich are you? How rich are you when your soul and you don't have a belief in a higher power You don't believe that even better things can happen above what you've already done. You know, you don't even have God in your life or having some faith of a higher power in your life. How good are you? And you've got to put energy towards that. I mean, I don't believe in work-life balance, but I do believe in respect life balance. I do believe you've got to put some energy and time into those things to make sure that it all works out for you because otherwise you will just be working your tail off. You come home and there'll be an empty closet. Nobody's going to be. Nobody's going to care about you because you'd just be a rich old person.
0: I have a friend who is a psychologist and he said something to me once. He's like, you know, when people are on their deathbed, nobody ever says, I wish I worked more, right? And we're so busy, work, work, work at the sacrifice of relationships and other things that we need to find fulfillment in our health, our relationships, being with family, friends, people. So absolutely, it's not just about.
1: But one one footnote on that. It's okay to go for the money grab. It's okay to dig your heels and say, you know something? I want a nicer house. I want a nicer car. And you can go and drive yourself hard to go make some extra money. It's just that when you're doing it for 10, 20, 30 years, it's probably not healthy. But you can go through a, a one or two year or a six month or a few weeks where you're just focused on making as much money as you can because you want that really nice. Like my daughter wanted this really expensive pocketbook. I mean, it's okay to money grab and want, you know, material things if that's what makes you kind of happy at the moment, nothing wrong with it. But when you make it a lifelong process where you just need material things to keep you floating, that may end up, you may end up in a, in a boat that's going to have a lot of holes in it.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I completely agree. So talk to us. Why is base, why why was baseball such a big sport for you as a kid and, and growing up?
1: Well, baseball is a great sport to follow because, um, You know, we were all big Yankee fans. I was really more of a basketball fan, love basketball. But, you know, I didn't have a basketball, couldn't afford one, and there was not a lot of places to play. So, uh, But I love basketball. That's a sport I still play even at the age of 60. I have an indoor full court in my house. That's how serious I am about it because I play, and I still have all these kids come over and play, and I love playing with them, and it's phenomenal. But baseball was one of those sports that, back when I was a kid that we could do as a, as a block, you know, as a group of 18 of us that could do something. And that was fun. You know, like we didn't have access to a lot of courts to play basketball, but you know, if we had a softball field or a baseball field, you know, 10 or 20 of us could do something as a group. And that was a lot of fun. And then there's nothing like Yankee baseball, you know, following the Yankees and going to Yankee stadium. And, you know, that's just America's sport back, especially back then where the numbers and the hits, and, you know, you'd, you know, we were doing fantasy sports before fantasy sports came up. We were betting on our players getting hits versus other players getting hits. And those were players that we just looked up to. And there's nothing like going to a live baseball stadium, especially Yankee Stadium. We see this big ivory building. You walk in and see this beautiful grass, which in Brooklyn, you never saw grass anywhere, let alone this beautiful field of grass and this beautiful stadium with the music on. It was just, oh, I thought I was in heaven. It was just amazing. So we did that as often as we could for $1.50 a ticket.
0: And what was your favorite part as a kid being in Yankee Stadium?
1: I mean, I, I, you know, I look back. I didn't do a lot of things with my dad. He died when I was young. I remember begging him to go to a Twainite doubleheader. We always loved the doubleheaders. So going to a Twainite doubleheader, leaving school early, and watching Mickey Mantle play and hit a home run, and then going with my friends on bat day. Are you kidding? A doubleheader for $1. fifty, and you get a bat? You can't beat that value. So we always loved those bat days on Sundays where we got the bats and got two games in one. It was a full day of baseball and arguing and watching, you know, some of the greats now when I look back on it, you, know, you get to watch the Harmon Kilbrews and the Frank Robinsons and um, some of the great players over the years that we got to go see at really young kids. And I, we went to 10, usually 20 games a year, maybe sometimes even more. We were 9, 10, 11 years old like five six of us getting on a train it's unbelievable it's crazy
0: wow good for you it's very yeah. different times today so i wouldn't have my yeah uh, you my get mugged kids, like, yeah. How's
1: we got mugged. you know one of the kids had to give up some money one of my friends gave up his watch everything else went pretty well you know mugging or robbing or fighting with some other kids it was kind of part of the, the trip you know so a bunch of nine-year-olds yeah you know give me some of your money okay here Gotcha. It wasn't a big deal sometimes we fought them off sometimes we took some of their money I, I don't know but that's brooklyn man you learn how to protect yourself and then sometimes you realize there's no shot and you give them the money
0: yes well i grew up in chicago so you know it, not yes i do know <laughs> yeah. so let's fast forward so in the 80s you started this company steiner associates talk to us about that journey and your vision for what uh ended up becoming steiner sports
1: well, what's funny about that is I, a couple of friends asked me if I wanted to join forces. I, I've been running a bunch of sports bars and I had relationships with a bunch of athletes. And I was going to be part of this group that we were going to do some sports marketing. Nobody really knew what sports marketing was in 1985. You know, there was a couple of companies out there doing it, but it wasn't like a known business like it is now. And so I show up, I talk to my wife and I quit my job and I show up for work. And the first day they're like, "Brandon, we can't have you in the partnership, but we could use that little office in the corner. I'm like, What? well you know it's just four people in the partnership's too many and then within about three weeks they left that office i'm still waiting for them to call me because they told me that i'd be able to move with them they never called me so i'm still waiting for that call and gratefully that they didn't call me so i started my own little business uh which i had no choice because i couldn't go home i was so embarrassed i told my wife i was gonna be part of this partnership so i said you know i had a better idea i'm gonna start this little company that's gonna do a marketing and pr and I was $400 a month rent in a little corner office. And I took $4,000 out of the bank, and got started. And the mistake that that group made is they left the phones on. You know, it was an office share. So I started getting some calls with some, <laughs> some appearances and some sports marketing stuff, which is really what I wanted to do. And I started facilitating them. And I turned Steiner Associates into Steiner Sports, which was really just a marketing company, which still exists to this day, the Steiner Agency which is that company which basically secures athletes for marketing purposes, PR, promotion, speaking, virtual speaking. And we really just help companies grow and go with the use of sports and sports talent. And that company was my dream company. I built it from scratch. And the difference with that company is what I did is instead of representing players, because I did that for a while, I represented the companies. So I would go to the companies who had no idea how to use athletes back in the late 80s, and I would show them how to use a talent, and come up with different ideas at a trade show or at a company meeting or at a, you know, at, at a, you know, they had a final end of the year meeting or they want to just do some PR for they had a new product. And in 1994, I started Steiner Collectibles, which is probably what I'm more, most well known for. Uh, I was representing uh, Mark Messier, Rizzuto, and then a couple years later, Jeter, Mariano, a lot of the Yankees. And the collectibles, I went home and I remember telling my wife, I think I had an idea. I'm doing all these appearances and I want to have collectibles to use as a raffle, as a premium to give away to their fans or customers when we do these corporate events. And it was a way for me to make some extra money. And my wife was just rolling her eyes. She had no idea who, who wanted an autographed baseball or whatever. And so I started Steiner collectibles and uh, I really didn't know that that was going to end up being a brand. I I really just thought that would be an extension of the appearances and stuff that I was doing. And it ended up being uh, the right time at the right place. Um, I ended up really taking what was a hobby and would end up being just a corporate premium, which I still sell those premiums, like get a ball, hope you're looking forward to my pitch next week. And you'd send an autographed ball to a client or you'd send a p- hockey puck on by a f- like Wayne Gretzky. We all have the same goal in common, that kind of stuff. we Hank Aaron bat. We're going to hit a home run together. If we work together, that kind of thing. So all of a sudden I, I was doing all these corporate premiums for companies and selling a lot of baseballs and pucks. And then people, stores started asking me for the stuff. So I started selling stuff to stores. And then in 96, when the Yankees won the World Series, I don't know, things just started exploding. And I just started creating this whole collectible thing. We were creating all these products. I don't know where all these ideas came from. And we were off to the races. I think a lot of it started, if I have time to tell you a story here, and it goes back to the high level of unacceptance, in 1994, my mom passed, and the Rangers in New York City won the Stanley Cup. And it was June 17th. I was really upset that day. I was going into work, and I saw the picture of Mark Messier. He was holding the cup. If anybody's a hockey fan, you know Mark. That was his sixth Stanley Cup. He was holding the cup on the back page of the Daily News. And I hated, hated, emphasized, hated going on the train to go into work. People had their shoes off, they were eating, they were belching, they were arguing with their spouses. I couldn't take it. I'm like, I got to get off this train. I got to do better for myself. I'm I'm just not tolerating this anymore. I got to get a car. But my wife, who's a CPA, CFO of a company, was really supporting us. I was barely making that much money. Even still, six years after I started, I was just making some money. She was really the one who was carrying the weight. I didn't have the balls to go home and say, honey, I need to buy a car. So, I could drive into the city. She's like, you crazy. We can't afford that. So, I start racking my brain. A high level of non acceptance. I'm like, I got to get a car. So, I looked out of the paper. I see Mark Messier. I said, I bet I could sell a ton of those. And there, sure enough, I spent three months tracking Mark Messier down to get him to sign the back page of the Daily News. And I sold a ton of them. We ended up doing a very complex contract with him that we did very well. And consequently, from that, I was able to go buy a Lexus SC 400. And so a lot of people ask me, like, how did you start signing sports at $4,000? And the collectible thing, I was like, honestly, it was just a money grab. I just wanted to buy a new car and get off the damn train. It wasn't nothing less. It wasn't nothing more. I just had a high level of non-acceptance. I don't want to be on that train anymore. I wanted to get a new car. And I had to figure out a scheme to make a whole bunch of money. Now, I didn't realize that that idea was going to be monumental as far as coming up with a completely new way of doing autograph collectibles, which was a theme called Remember the Moment. And taking that Messier photo was a great moment in New York sports history. So I started tracking down every athlete that had a great moment. The Joe Namath, Super Bowl III, or Bobby Orflyer through the air, Kirk Gibson, that home run on on the bottom of the ninth against San Francisco. And I started tracking those players down and doing a whole autograph line called Remember the Moment. And that's really what put from that money grab I was into the whole spirit of trying to connect people back with their favorite moments in sports. And from that money grab, sure enough, I developed a whole company that spiritually and everything was a good fit. People love that idea that they're able to get something autographed, a piece of something from an athlete that actually was meaningful to them because they were at that game or experienced it. And then we were off to the races, man. So one thing really does lead to another. I can't emphasize that enough to anybody listening that you may feel like you're wasting your time doing something. There's no such thing. It's only a waste of time if you don't learn from it or really think past what I always call your first idea is not your best idea. So you have to think past your first idea, whether it's good or bad. This is usually even a better idea when you actually think past it and keep grinding at it. And uh, that's exactly what I was doing, just constantly keep thinking of the next best thing to do with the idea that I just done. And sure enough, it ended up paying big dividends for me.
0: Well, I love that story. And as I'm listening to you talk about it, you know, one other thing that I'm thinking about, I love that you come back to this high level of non-acceptance as confidence goes hand in hand with that. When you're confident in your ability, a lot of people think that confidence means that you have all the answers, but I like to tell people that that's not the case. What confidence means is that you believe in your ability to figure things out, no matter what the situation is. You're like, I'm I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna do what I have to do. You had, to, you did what you had to do so that you could have the car, right? And things just kind of got in motion um, because you, you, you just started. Well, um, I, you know
1: what's interesting about what you just said is that you know a lot of people are stressed, or a lot of people are are not even when they, they're approaching things. But the truth of the matter is, I always say when you take action over anxiety, that's the choice. And the second thing is. If you have anxiety and you're stressed, it's because, one, you're not confident in your ability. But the other two things that people don't talk about is you need to first be confident in your strategy. If you don't know what you're doing, you don't know where you're going, you don't know where you've been, and you don't have a good strategy, yeah, I can see why you could be a little bit unraveling. But if you're confident in your strategy, you're confident in your ability, and you're also confident in God, you're confident in your faith, you're confident in a higher power, you're not stressed. There's nothing else you could do is having a strong belief, having a strategy you've thought through, and then having the confidence in your ability to execute that strategy. This, sometimes it just doesn't work out for you, but it's not because you didn't think it through and do everything you can to make it right. And I think that sometimes people get overly stressed over things uh, that are not in their control. But when you have a strategy, you're confident in your ability, you're confident in your faith, those are people that don't get overly stressed because that, those are the ingredients that are antidepressants. They really are. And you know, I'll tell you another thing is that if you are overstressed, the only time you're ever gonna grow, and I have to get on this little rant, but I will. The only thing you ever really gonna the only time you're really gonna grow is if you are stressed. And people go, oh, I'm so stressed. I'm like, good. You know why? Good, because when was the last time you grew and actually developed into something more than what you are? Is probably when you were stressed. And I tell you this, there are thousands of species on this planet, thousands, ants, bugs, rabbits, cows elephants, dogs, cats, you're never going to wake up tomorrow morning, your dog will have fed itself, walked itself, is reading the paper in the corner. You're never going to look over at the fish tank and go see your goldfish doing backstrokes, strokes, chilling. No other species can get better. The reality is we have the ability, humans have the ability, and we're the only species to improve, to get better, to deal with stress, to deal with pressure every time. Some of the worst things that's ever happened to us has not wiped us out as a race. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, why are you here? You're here to improve. You're here to get better. And you're here for the common good, not only for yourself, because, again, we're the only species that can worry clearly about each other, show love, show emotion to each other, and without expecting anything back. You know, an elephant's just going to eat 17 hours a day, poop a lot, and hopefully have some sex. And those elephants have been around for thousands of years. Never any improvement. So, you know, if you're under some stress, good. Put yourself under stress because you can handle it because that's the stuff that's going to get you to grow and go. That's the stuff that's going to force you to improve your process. That's the stuff that's going to get you to think about whether you're going to accept where you're at or not accept where you're at. Doing something about it only comes when you have a high level of non-acceptance. So remember that you are gifted to be born on this planet with the ability to improve, to increase, to do something about, it, to change things for the better. Absolutely. That's amazing. So thank the good Lord for having some stress. Thank the good Lord for pushing you maybe further than you feel comfortable. Because don't that discomfort we all know and many speakers have talked about it is what you need to get used to. The difficulties and the discomfort that life provides for you is the stuff that makes life and puts you in a position to improve life and prove better. We are growing if you are learning you're happy. When you feel like your relationship with your spouse and kids is growing, your family is growing, you're happy. When you get a promotion at your job, you get more responsibility, you're happy. If you're not growing, you're unhappy. Boy, I was on a little rant there. I'm sorry. But it, No, it's, it's
0: great. It, no, it, it's absolutely you do have to push yourself and there is no growth in comfort and there's no comfort in in growing. So you do have and to there's push no yourself. There's no happiness. Yes, there's no happiness either. Oh, I've been correct. here
1: 20 years doing the same thing. I am so happy. I've been at this desk doing the exact same job for 20 straight years and I'm ecstatic. It's the best thing that ever happened in my life. Can you introduce me to a person that says that?
0: Right. Yeah. They don't exist because you don't have that happiness unless you're pushing yourself, improving, looking at how you can stretch yourself and grow. So talk to us. So you wrote these three different books that I had mentioned when I talked about your, your bio, which one was your favorite book? First of all,
1: by the way, free when you go to Collectible Exchange. If you just go to the site, we're gonna give you the book free. Pay for the shipping. Which one is my favorite? Yes. Boy, you know the first book, Business Playbook, I wrote because I couldn't get a job coming out of college, and I was so pissed. I said, when I figure this out, I gotta write a book about how you can prepare better when you graduate college. A lot of kids wait till their party's over at the end of college to start figuring it out. But the smarter kids, and I'm seeing a lot more of them now, are figuring out when they're a teenager they're working hard to building out things so that when they get out of school, they're better prepared. And I love when I'm seeing younger kids. And I went, I went to about 60 colleges to promote that book. I love what I did with that book. It's, it's a great book for a kid in high school and college or just getting started after they've graduated. And I wish I could republish that book, especially now for the kids graduating college who think they're in a little bit of a, really difficult scenario when they're really not the, the scenario they're in is based on what they've been doing for the last seven or eight years not based on what happened over the last seven or eight weeks you got to have balls is how i built steiner I, I wrote that book because for another person that i ran into said how'd you start steiner how'd you build a collectible business and how'd you develop this industry into what it is it really takes you from a to z about how i did that but i think the best book to answer your question is living on purpose because Most people have a game plan and a strategy about, you know, growing up and maybe going to college one day. Then they have another strategy, what they're going to do with their career. But very few people have a strategy after you've had your career for 20 years, what you're going to do. Most people don't have a good strategy for when they're in their 50s and 60s. And they're not prepared to deal with the stuff that comes up at 50 and 60, which are phenomenal years, by the way. Um, You have a lot of stuff, experience, knowledge, in some cases, money family and and there's a lot you can do at 50 and 60 and a lot of people are just not prepared and I try to write not tell you what to do but I try to tell you all the holes that I found myself in as I moved out of my 40s and I try to explain what I did and who the help that I got from some of the greatest gurus I cheated every which way I went to some of the highest level the sleep doctors the sex doctors some of the smartest people in the country and I got their keys to prepare and deal with your late forties, fifties, and sixties. And, uh, I I called it living on purpose about faith, fortune, and fitness. And, uh, the book is basically broken down in those three buckets. But if you know somebody that's in their forties or even some people in their thirties, but you know, somebody in their forties and fifties, it's a perfect father's day gift because it's very honest. It's very, uh, transparent. My family was not happy with me with that book because I definitely told a lot of stories about my relationships with them, my wife, my wife and not everything always was great and stuff that I was disappointed even though I had a lot of financial success I was just not happy with some of my other successes and I talked about that and what I did about it and how I fixed it and like last night we were, we were having dinner and I looked at my phone and my, my uh wife and my kids says that in your blog in your book you say you don't open look at your phone from six to ten it's all right, I hear you're right. No, no, you wrote that. And it's our job to make sure you're doing what you say. You can't just say it and then not do it. I said, I'll just look at my phone for a minute. But you say while you're having dinner with your family, not to look at your phone, which I stress highly to people that on date night when you're having dinner or when you're out with your wife or spouse, don't take your phone with you and don't look at your phone. You know, make sure you schedule a specific time that's uninterrupted to the people that matter to you the most one of my best tips in that book and uh, a lot of people have written me about the fact that they finally went out on some date nights and went out to dinner with their wife or their kids and didn't take their phone how much it improved how much better it was and how addicted they were on their phone and I get it you know phones are such an important part of our life but it's amazing the time when I told my wife that I wasn't taking my phone with her. We were going out for dinner. I just want to pay attention and catch up with what was going on. I mean, it's amazing our look and how our relationship has changed since that she knows I'm a crazy entrepreneur. And during the week, it's hard to get my attention. But on a Friday night and Saturday night, that phone doesn't come with me. And we we'll go out for lunch on Saturday and Sunday with her. Sometimes the kids, it doesn't come with me. And they know they have pretty much my undivided attention. It makes the rest of the week tolerable for people that are really busy. You know, you're not that much fun to be around when you're really, really busy. You're looking at your phone every minute and talking on the phone. But if they know they can get you for four, five, six hours a week, sometimes that's more than enough. And at least shows a little sign of respect.
0: Sure. Yeah. And when I was in the corporate world, I mean, I traveled all the time. My older kids loved to remind me about how I missed this event or that event. And uh, so last year I did a video posted on LinkedIn about, well, how do you make up for the times when you're gone? Last year, I missed uh, two of my kids' birthdays in October because I was at a conference. And uh, Mm -hmm. what I wrote or what I said in that video was that you can make up for those things because, you know, as parents, as working professionals, we're not going to be there for everything and we can't always have time for everything that our family needs but if like you said you can plan time to be fully present check the phone uh, you know at the door so to speak or put it in your purse or whatever and just give that undivided attention to those people and they will respect that and, and appreciate that and understand when you can't be there and the analogy I give is it's like if you go to your kids soccer games or you know whatever sporting event your children would rather have you be there fully engaged once than have you there at every single event, but on your phone, multitasking, checked out.
1: Couldn't agree with you more. There's no question. Uh, I think it's just important to make sure that the most important things, the most important people are the most important people and the most important things. And with most people, it's just not the case.
0: Absolutely. So, um, you know, we talked about collectible exchange earlier. I'm going to put that in the show notes. Uh, all three of your books are fantastic books. You guys listening and gals go to the site, get your free copy, check out uh, a book and I know there's going to be so much value in any of the three books uh, that you that you want to get. What I want to do now is, oh, before I transition to my uh, my two-minute drill where I'm going to ask you some some fun questions, something else that I learned about you is that you are uh, generally credited with inventing the highly popular Everything Bagel. So talk to us about uh, how you came to be around the Everything Bagel.
1: Well, you know, it's funny about that story of, oh, boy, Gary Vee got this whole Everything Bagel thing going. What an what a influencer he is. But You know, in this time and age, especially what we're going through, you know, being able to pivot is so important. And I'll just tell you an abbreviated story. But, you know, when I was 12, I went to go see my mother. I told her I wanted a career change. Like, career change at 12? Come on. I said, well, two years, I've been racking my brain. I want to hang out, spend more time with my friends on Saturdays after school. I don't want to deliver fruit and vegetables anymore. So I started a paper route. And, you know, I, I basically needed to open up more accounts to win this box of candy bars. And I was having no luck. So I knocked on this older woman's door, and and she's, well, like 80 years old, and she's like, no, I don't want to get the paper delivered. I said, ma'am, do you have a stack of papers in there? She says, yeah, but then I got to tip you. I said, same price as me as the corner store. So I went home, and I I, I told my mother we had to move out of the neighborhood, that the people in this neighborhood were cheap. This was not a good place for us to live. And my mother said, sit down. You got to stop selling. You got to start solving and serving. If you're selling something everyone else is selling, you got to differentiate yourself, and you got to be a solution. People will buy something from someone that has a solution, especially if you're selling the same thing as someone else. So figure out how you can serve people, how you can solve a problem, and add value. Now, value is something you can do for someone that they can't do for themselves. And that's a very important element to what we're going through now, which I'll tell you in a minute. So I go back, I'm knocking on doors, and i got nothing. I mean, I am nothing, zero. And finally, it's 10 o'clock at night. I've opened up one account in two weeks' worth of knocking on doors, which is not going to win the box of candy bars. And I'm so desperate. I go back to the older lady and I knock on our door again. She thinks it's like a fire. 10 o'clock at night, are you crazy? I said, man, just give me a minute. If there's the rental downpours, heat wave, blizzard, storm, a woman such as yourself shouldn't be outside. If I bring you milk and bagels, would you get the paper delivered if I bring it to you every morning at 7 a.m.? You would do that from this. I was concerned. Women such as yourself shouldn't be out with adverse weather conditions. That is so sweet. Not only did she get the paper, but she turned me on. I went from 29 dailies to 199 dailies and 234 Sundays. So again, one of the quick lessons if you're listening is, you know, are you really listening to your customers and are you a solution-based salesperson? Are you selling something because you're trying to get a number? Are you selling something because you're trying to solve a problem for your customer? And in order to do that, you must Listen to your customers. Understand how they need to receive your product, based on what they need, not on what you want to sell. So here I am. I'm delivering more milk and bagels, and I'm going to this bagel shop every other day to do you know deliver dozens of bagels. And it was a bagel factory right down the street from my house, and that's how I came up with the idea. And the guy says, I got to tell you something. You're in here religiously. You're a hardworking young man. Would you like to learn how to bake bagels? I said, yeah. So yeah. He we start at four in the morning. You could work till seven. At seven, deliver your papers. Then once a week, uh, I may need you a little bit uh, extra time in the afternoon. So, of course, you know, at 12 years old, I said, Joe, yeah, I can wake up at four in the morning. I'm falling asleep in school and everything. So I'm about to quit. And the guy says, listen, I got a good job opportunity. I can give you a raise. I need a night baker. My night baker just quit. I was like, great. I could qu- don't have to get up early to deliver the papers anymore. I could do this. And I can still play with my friends after school. It's great. Now I stopped baking bagels and I got the ADHD because in the morning when we were baking at four in the morning, we're baking thousands of bagels and everything was speed baking. Now all of a sudden, I'm just baking as needed. So I'm baking a couple dozen here, there. And I stopped playing around with the seeds, salt and poppy, twists, onion, smashes, you know, all kinds of crap. And then I have all these seeds on the board. and I just started throwing them on the bagel for the everything bagel. And uh, I, went, I remember my neighbor was working the front. I said, taste this bagel It's delicious, this is everything bagel. That was in 1971. And uh, that was how the Everything Bagel got created. But the sad part of that story, though, is and it is a fun story because I was screwing around with all these bagels and I worked and baked and made bagels all the way through high school. I did that for about uh, six or seven years, which was a good opportunity for me. As it's, you know, because back in the uh, mid 70s, it was very hard to get a job as a kid, frankly. But I didn't make any money off that concept. You know, you think about there's everything croissants, there's everything seasoning, there's everything, everything. Everything crackers, but uh, I'm not getting any royalties from that. So, uh, but you know, sometimes good ideas. I'm, I'm grateful to have uh, an idea that worked. You know, it's, it's nice to know that that, that thing kind of took off, obviously.
0: There you go. I appreciate you sharing that story. All right. So now let's uh, get into my two minute drill, which are just seven fun questions. Are you ready? Of course. All right. Here we go. What's your favorite food?
1: Oh, boy. That's tough, man. Oh, you hit me with that. Jeez. well first it's got to be l&b pizza you know spumoni gardens brooklyn is the best pizza on the planet and then you know i know it's going to sound crazy but i love a really good salami sandwich you know uh with swiss cheese and mustard on a really good seeded rye bread
0: okay do you make it yourself or you go to a special place to have it
1: well, the salami sandwich now I make myself because I ate so much as a kid. I love that. And the uh, pizza, you got to go to L&B. It's the only place okay. you can get it. It's just one place in Brooklyn, Coney Island to get it. And every like few months, I converse my family to go pick up some pizza.
0: Okay. Well, next time I am out that way, I'm going to have to check it out. Oh, not it's unbelievable.
1: It Trust me. It's second to none. Whoever's in second place on the pizza thing is a distant second.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right. How about what is your favorite movie?
1: Well, there's a couple. that Everybody knows is the Dirty Dozen with Lee, uh, with, uh, Lee Marvin and, and all those great stars. It's an old war movie that, you know, has Jim Brown in it, Tully Savalas. And then Braveheart is one of my second favorite, along with us. Uh, I'll just leave it at those two. Like, Rocky 1 is, is also an honorable mention, because we watched it, like, we used to have a, 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 a bootleg copy of Rocky. We watched the first half of it almost every night before we went out in high school, like, to get us all fired up. But the Dirty Dozen, I've watched no less than maybe 100, 150 times. My mother, every time it was on, would call me and say, Dirty Dozen's on. And uh, it's just star-studded. And I I still, like every now and then when I'm a little down and not feeling great, I pop that movie in. I love it.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And how about, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but what is your favorite professional sports team?
1: Oh, boy. Uh, Because it's changed. You know, it used to be the Rangers, and it's not really anymore – it has to be the Yankees at this point. I mean, I live and die with those Yankees one way or the other.
0: Okay, that's what I thought you were going to say.
1: <laughs> and Syracuse, by the way. you know, uh, My Syracuse Orange is everything. That's my number, number one team. I follow the women's basketball team first and foremost, the men's basketball team second, and then everything Syracuse lacrosse, football, and everything else. So I follow everything Syracuse. I'm a diehard Syracuse Orange fan.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Next question is what is the best piece of advice that you've gotten from a coach or a mentor?
1: So many pieces of advice, you know, if you use your head, you don't have to use your feet. You know, you have to make a decision if you want to work from the neck up and the neck down, both are acceptable, but you got to make that decision. I remember that distinctly as I was kind of wavering one day, as far as my studies and uh, my next door neighbor pulled me aside and says, listen, you got to make a decision. You know, you want to work from the neck up or you want to work from the neck down. Because if you don't go to school, you probably work from the neck down, and uh, I never forget that. And another piece of advice my mother gave me was I had a, a trouble, trouble speaking, and uh, I had to go to a speech pathologist. And I hated this woman. I hated going, and I was bitching and complaining. And my mother just got sick of it because I was relentlessly complaining that I didn't want to go. I had trouble pronouncing two or three letters, and my mother said, "Listen, you know, you you you're never going to go anywhere if you're speaking like a truck driver like this." You know, I was really talking like you know. So one day she picked me up after school and she says, you know, I want to take you for a drive. I want you to meet someone. And she pulled up behind a sanitation truck, big New York City sanitation truck. And she, I want you to meet Joe. So we go out of the car and Joe's in the driver's seat. Joe, this is my son, Brandon. And, you know, he's very interested in becoming a sanitational engineer. Maybe he can actually drive a garbage truck one day. He seemed like he's on that path. He doesn't want to get learned how to speak properly. And this would be a great profession for him. And uh, so he starts explaining about the benefits of being a sanitation worker and everything. And I went to the speech pathologist.
0: Gotcha. Now let's flip it. And what would be the best piece of advice that you would give to someone?
1: The fortune's in the follow up. You know, it's like you got to have energy, you know, you got to have enthusiasm, but you got to follow up. You know, if you're going to do something, you're going to say something and they not follow up, I'm a big follow up guy.
0: Sure. Absolutely solid advice. All right. How about what is one thing that most people don't know about you?
1: I'm a crazy, I have a TV watcher. I watch too much TV. I love TV. You know, my wife kills me about it, but I love TV and I have over 300 pair of basketball shorts with no pockets that are usually the game issued or game worn by either different college players or pro players. So when I go on the court to play basketball, I always have the coolest and neatest basketball shorts.
0: Got it. Okay. Interesting, fun facts about you. All right. Last question is, if you could be any superhero, who would you be and why?
1: Oh, boy. That's a tough one. Um, I kind of like Batman because, you know, I love helping people for the good, the common good. I can't emphasize how important the common good is. He's a superhero that actually always seems to want to do good for the common good, not necessarily for his own benefit. And I wish that more people would pick up that characteristic because I think it's everything, especially going through a time like we are now.
0: Absolutely. All right. So one other thing I wanted to mention on the show, you recently tweeted advice to all recent college grads have tenacity, but don't overprice yourself. Know your worth, be a sponge and learn from those around you. You might think you know everything, but you don't, you never stop learning anything else that you would share to either recent college grads or recent high school grads as they're moving on to the next chapter in their life.
1: Yeah. hundred percent is don't compromise Don't sit back and wait as many problematic things that we have going on right now. There's some amazing things going on. Now. There are a lot of companies that are doing incredibly well fish where the fish are. And if you're looking for a job, how flexible are you as far as you're willing to move to another part of the country or world to find and fulfill your dreams. So a lot of kids talk about their dreams and how bad they want it. And then when they're asked about, well, you want to move to Seattle? Oh, you want to move to Chicago? not so flexible so how bad do you really want it
0: great advice so as we wrap up today's show what's the best way for people to follow you and kind of see what you're up to
1: simple i mean linkedin you have to follow me because i'm over on the connections but i do answer all my messages on linkedin you can get all the information on brandon steiner if you want to get the blog brandonsteiner.com and you get the 22 laws of negotiating till the end of may which is phenomenal just pops down and then Um, you know, I'm a big Facebook guy too. And then obviously go to Collectible Exchange if you want to get the free book.
0: Perfect. And we'll be sure to put all of those links in the show notes so people can follow you, get the book and, uh, and see what you're up to. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for being on today's show. It's been a pleasure chatting with you.
1: My pleasure. Great catching up. Again, thank you for all you do and keep up the good job. I love your pods. Love your posts.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for listening. And we will talk to you next time. Until then, make sure that you suit up, you show up, and you move the ball. Thank you for listening to Move the Ball. To see more about what I'm up to and how I can help you to move the ball, check out my website at www.jenniferagarrett.com.